0: Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. From the heart of a father today, and I want to speak to you as a father. Uh, For some of you, you've been so gracious to communicate, you know, that I would be a spiritual father in your life, and and I'm going to take advantage of that today and lean in. Uh, Others, uh, maybe you've thought about that, maybe you haven't, uh, but just open your heart and see if I can put something in there today that will uh, take a fatherly place. Uh, Because it is Father's Day, and I love Father's Day, by the way. Every year, I just, I really enjoy it. Um, for a number of reasons. One, because uh, I loved my dad. He was kind of my hero. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't, I didn't do this last night when I delivered the message, uh, but he's been with the Lord for about 14 years now. And, uh, and I, I miss him like crazy still. Um, but I, I not only loved my dad, I loved being a dad. Not every single part of it. Some parts are just not fun and, you know, they're exhausting and expensive and gross and everything else. But, but I love being a dad. I really did. I'm thoroughly enjoying now learning to be a grandpa, a granddad. And, uh, and I look forward to that. <clears throat> but, but let me tell you the other reason why I love Father's Day, because Father's Day is the day that I know I'm guaranteed that I'm going to get some of the love and the affirmation and the appreciation that I crave, By the way, if you're here and you're a dad or you're a man, and uh, maybe you're thinking, wow, that's kind of a crutch. You really need that. Listen to me. You need it too, even though you maybe not realize it or you're not able to verbalize it, you're desperate for it because God's wired us that way. I'm not talking about flattery. I'm talking about deeper conversation where you get people that look you in the eye. They say something to you that's, that's meaningful, that brings a strength and a, an encouragement, courage to your soul. And that's all super, super important, and it's part of God's plan. And, and I know some of you, when, I, when I'm that vulnerable, you might think, well, Pastor Gil, are you not getting the, the affirmation and the encouragement you need, like, all the time? And, and I don't want you to hear this wrong. Uh, I have a great family and a great spiritual family that's around me, and I, I do get affirmation and love from them. But, but my response to that would be, when you ask me, are you not getting enough? My response is, well, what's enough? I mean, can you ever really get too much of that? Especially when you think about what's going on in our culture and our world today. And I want to talk a little bit before we get to the actual message, because I, I really want you to hear the things that are rolling around in my heart that I know are relevant and applicable. We are under an assault And I'm not about to get on a political stump speech. I want to talk as a pastor because that's my role. But Revelations talks about the fact that one day we will stand before the Lord and he will say, this is the accuser of the brethren. This is the one who's been slandering you who's been whispering insecurity into your heart, who's been trying to get fear and intimidation and muscle you around and pressure you, this is the one that we're talking about. And we're going to get to watch him finally be neutralized and thrown into the pit. But, but right now, we're, we're feeling the effects in a very intense way all over the globe, uh, but particularly in this country as the family is under assault, not always directly, very indirectly at times. When you think about the roles uh, that are are being challenged, uh, the roles that God established in the family, the husband, the wife, the mom, the dad, think about genders being questioned and canceled. Where's the order, the divine order that God set up so that he could flow blessing and he could take this on from generation to generation? Those are not just in topical debate those are being questioned and those are being slandered and those are being attacked by this accuser of the brethren. There's a mastermind behind all of this that the Bible said was going to happen. But I'm so grateful that in the same passage of Revelations, it not only says that that the accuser is identified and neutralized, but it, it looks backwards in time and says in all the time that he's pounding and slandering and coming against us to convince us that we are not who God says we are, that we're not up for the challenge, that we really don't have what it takes to move forward in victory and in confidence. The Bible looks back and says, but all of them who leaned in, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. We have everything we need to be victorious. It doesn't matter how long we end up hanging around the planet before Jesus plucks us away. We have everything we need to remain victorious and to remain confident and moving forward. But listen to me, that's where the attack is. And I'm just going to focus on men today. Ladies, I don't mean to imply that there's not an attack on you, but it's Father's Day. So let me talk to to the guys for a little bit. There's a specific attack on men and on the masculinity of men confusing them. What does it mean to really be a man, to be a man of God the way that God created us to be? And the, and the, 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 the reason for that is, number one, to neutralize the role so you don't get to stand up and with confidence be the covering for the family. Because somehow that violates somebody else's role or diminishes something else. And and so it's one way to cause you to step back and shrink back. The other thing is, when crisis or challenge comes, it also neutralizes you from that instinct to run to the battle, whatever that requires, to do whatever it takes to protect and provide and to guide and lead. It's wired in us, hardwired. But it's neutralizing and confusing that. And so what, what we're seeing happening is so many dads, are they, they have all this love and they have all this stuff and this instinct in their heart that triggers them and says, I should be going that direction. But this pressure and this intensity and this confusion in the culture instead pushes them back and they end up stepping way back in the family. And when that happens, who's going to lead? Who is running to the battle? Who is pressing into the chaos and coming back to their family and saying, hey, listen, here's what I believe the Lord's telling us to do. That's okay. We're going to be all right. We're going to get through this. But this is the way we have to go. There's this grand scheme to neutralize. But I'm going to tell you something. That is not God's plan. And he has not surrendered to that. When you look at the last days as a whole, there's definitely this side that the Bible talks about that it's perilous times. It's going to get worse and worse. People are going to become more consumed in themselves and their own ideas and the spirit of the Antichrist. Okay, it's not a person initially. It's a driving force. It's ideas. It's a collection of thought. It's a narrative that pushes against. That spirit's going to become more and more prevalent, more and more overt, more and more openly defying. But the other side of the New Testament says, but at the same time, there's a church, a bride of Christ. There are men of God that begin to clue in and say, wait a minute. That's not what the, God, the Bible says at all. That's not what God promised at all. And so while the world is getting worse and worse, the church begins to wake up and kind of brush herself off and shake herself a little bit and say, listen, we're going to become who God wants us to be. Listen, I, I know which side that I'm going to be on. I know which side most of us are going to be on. And I'm praying that we'll hear some things this morning, and you'll be encouraged in that. And for those of you that are, ah, oh, we're just not figuring out how to do it, that you'll be able to step across a line this morning. This morning, we're going to talk about uh, what, it, what it means to become a man of Issachar. And for some of you, are like, what in the world is that? A man of Issachar. Well, you're going to find out what that is. And you're going to find out that this is exactly what we need for today. I mean, there's never been a time greater, that, that there's a greater need for men of Issachar, and this is exactly who God's designed us to be. So I ask you to turn to 1 Chronicles, and uh, we're going to first just look at really quickly at a couple of verses in chapter 10, and then we're going to go grab one really important verse in chapter 12, and then we're going to move on from there. But while you're, lo- while you're looking for 1 Chronicles chapter 10, let me give you a little bit of background, okay? I love 1 Chronicles because uh, I'm kind of an action filmed guy. And I grew up that way. My dad was, you know, a real action film guy. And so we, we just kind of grew up like that. And, uh, and First Chronicles reads like the script to an action film. There's lots of battles, and there's lots of kings that are vying for power, and, you know, and, and there's lots of transfers, and all kind of stuff is going on, and I love it. But in First Chronicles chapter 10, we, we have a very key moment in Israel's history where a power transfer takes place. And so let me tell you why. Uh, Saul has been the king of Israel for some time and little by little he progressively began to pursue his own ideas and his own thoughts. He turned completely away from God and at this point in Israel's history the nation's in chaos. They're in chaos politically they're in trouble economically because Saul has diverted so much of the finances of the nation over to pursuing something that he thought was a good idea when almost the whole nation knew that's a terrible idea. But he went with it anyway. And really kind of the, the, one of the other cruxes is Saul has openly accused and has been actively pursuing with most of the military one of his top generals named David, who we will know in the Bible as King David, who has been nothing but loyal to Saul. And yet Saul's been pursuing him, and he's thrown the nation into chaos. They don't know who's their friend and who's their foe. They don't know who's on which side, and there's this tremendous instability. Well, the enemies of Israel see the vulnerability, and so they came after Israel, particularly their arch enemy, the Philistines. And 1 Chronicles chapter 10 is a summarization of the final key battle that happens in this particular war. And we find out that Israel doesn't come out on the winning side and, uh, and Saul ends up losing his life because of it. So let me read to you in 1 Chronicles chapter 10 verse 13 and 14. It's this summarization of this final thing that happened and more importantly, why it happened. And what transpired, and then that'll launch us into 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Listen to this. It said, so Saul died for his sin against the Lord. Now that's important you stop and catch that. Let me tell you why Saul didn't die. He didn't die because the Philistines just bested them. He didn't die because they were too militarily strong, because they were too strategic, because they were better fighters. He didn't die because of any of that. He died for one reason only, and he died because he sinned against the Lord. It's important you hear that, because the threat that we have from the enemy, whether real or, or you know, un- unseen in the spiritual, the threat from the enemy is never the issue. The issue is whether or not we are finding our covering and finding our strength in the Lord. I'll never forget when I, and I, I, pardon me for not having the reference, but I came across a proverb one time in my devotion, and it said, um, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And I happened to be going through a really challenging point right then, and the lights just came on. Oh, here all this time, I feel like I'm about to faint, but it's because the enemy's too big. The challenge is too arduous. And the scripture said, oh, no, no, that's not it. The Bible says that if you faint because you're under challenge or you're being attacked, it's because your strength is too small. You know why? Because as believers, the Bible says we are more than conquerors in Christ. That we're we're always the ones that are leading, being led into triumph. That we're supposed to rule and reign. If God is for us, who can be against us? And we see so many examples in the Bible where the people of God were outnumbered, were outgunned, were outarmed, were out you know uh, uh, strategized, and yet God brought them out on the winning side, and not just by a thin margin, victoriously. I mean, they just glor- gloriously won the battle. And so here we find Saul and he's in this battle and it says, so Saul died for his sins sins of the Lord, listen, because he did not keep the word of the Lord. That was the heartbeat of what what was going on here. That was the flaw in the whole battle plan is you've got a guy leading it who's just not paying attention to what God said at all. And now he elaborates uh, on that and he says, he had asked a woman who spoke with spirits what he should do. In other words, instead of going to the Lord and saying, God, tell me what to do. Lord, show me what's going on. Saul Saul got desperate enough and he wouldn't even ask the Lord. He went to a psychic. He went to a medium. He went to a spiritualist. And these things are completely warned, cautioned, and forbidden by the Lord because they open us up to demonic spirits. And Saul, just, he knew that. He just blatantly went and did it anyway. And so the Bible says that because of that, he died. But notice this in verse 14. He did not ask, ask the Lord, so the Lord killed him. Now, it's not like God directly killed him. God just stepped back, removed his protection, said, okay, you don't, you don't want to partner with me? Then... I'll let you do what you want to do. Step back. And the Philistines were actually the one who killed him and his sons. But notice this last line, and he gave the nation to David, the son of Jesse. Now we know him as King David. Years before, he'd been anointed uh, by the prophet Samuel. It had been prophesied that he would be the next king. He was the heir apparent. By the way, the whole nation knew it. Everybody knew it. Saul's the only one trying to pretend like it's not real. And yet, because of that, he put his life in jeopardy, and the life of his sons, uh, Saul got his whole family killed. Now, let me fast forward now, and we're in, this, we're in this, this thing that's unfolding in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. David is now newly installed as the king, and he stepped into a mess, I mean, the nation of Israel is divided, they're in chaos, and so David realizes the first thing he has to do is he has to assess and assemble some strong leaders. Back in that day, it was the military that helped to to provide the strength and the focus and the backbone, and he had to assemble these strong leaders so that he could regain national stability, and he could go back and win back some of the cities that the Philistines had stole from them in these battles. And so what we have in in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, he's giving us a list of those military leaders that David sees and recognizes needs to be at the forefront. They need to build the framework for what David's going to assemble so David can regain stability in the nation. And right in the middle of that list, we have this description in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 verse 32. It says, there were 200 captains of the sons of Issachar. And here, here's how he describes these, these men. They understood the times and had much understanding of what Israel should do and all of their brothers obeyed them. Now, there's not another description in that whole list that even comes close to matching that. You, you, you do see in the list that, you know, how brave men were and how strong they were in battle and how skilled they were at fighting. But this is like the only one in the list that shows a greater depth, that here's guys who they understood what was going on, not just the battles and not just the exterior, you know, the, the out, the, the circumstances, but they saw through something and said, no, let, that, let me tell you what the real thing that's going on here. And not only that, they had some understanding and knew exactly what Israel had to do. And listen to this, evidently, they had done, they had demonstrated these characteristics long enough To where the people that were around them that they had influence over said, I don't know what to do. Go ask them. They always know what to do. To the point that all of their brothers were following them. You know, none of the nation of Israel was experiencing that. This was a divided, chaotic nation. But David sees the 200 men of this certain tribe and he says, there's something different about those guys. They can see right through the exterior, right through the chaos, all the narrative, and they said, No, let me tell you what's going on. And they knew exactly what to do, and they demonstrated this life of consistency long enough to where all their brethren said, Yeah, we'll we'll follow you. Oh yeah, yeah, we we know that you know, and so we're right after it, and we'll follow you. And this was really, really important to them. So here's what I want to do: I want to unpack who the sons of Issachar were a little more. Because the more we learn about these guys, the, the more interesting and the more relevant it becomes to our own life and then ultimately to, to today. So let me take you on just a little bit of a journey to see more about this, Sons of Issachar. First of all, the name Issachar actually means a man of wages or a man of reward. And that doesn't seem like it's a really big deal. It seems like, yeah, well, okay, that, that, I get that. But, but it's a big deal because in the Old Testament, they would name, name their children either because of a prophetic sense of what the Lord wanted to do, or they would name the child based on what they kind of thought or what they saw. And oftentimes even change that name later on when they begin to see different traits and different tendencies, or there was something that happened that said, no, we, we now can see really clearly what direction that, that their life needs to head. And so this says that they were a man of wages or a man of great reward. And we have, we have another expansion in Gen, uh, Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob, who's actually Issachar's dad, prophesies over Issachar. And he, he says, I do have a prophetic sense about what the Lord's going to do with you and the generations following you. And so he prophesies to them. And so here's what he says in Genesis 49, verse 50, starting in verse 14. He says, Issachar is a strong donkey. And if I were, I mean, I, I'm, I read that and I think, well, that's not off to a great start. It's like, wow, who wants, who wants to hear dad say that? You're like a strong donkey. But, but listen, when you're living in an agriculture or an agrarian society, that was a really good thing to hear. Because donkeys are animals that are bred to carry enormous loads of weight, And to carry this enormous load of weight for a long period of time. They're they're the guaranteed transportation under times of great pressure and great weight. That you're going to be able to get what you need from this place to that place. That's what a donkey represented. And in this culture, it's like, that was a great thing. But he didn't stop there. He went on and he said, this strong donkey is lying between two burdens. And he, that's Issachar, saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. This says something else about this burden bearer, this guy who, who, can, uh, who can stand under a lot of pressure and just keep moving forward. It says, but he's not driven by culture. He doesn't feel that this drive to be competitive, but instead he focuses on pacing himself resting and exerting energy so that he can stay accurate and consistent in the things that, that he's being assigned to do. And he does all of that, no matter how much the pressure and the weight, he does all of that with a great outlook. It's like, this is a, this is a good land. We got a good opportunity. We're, this is going to work. We're going to be able to pull this around. And this is what characterized him. And listen to this, to this last thing. It says, and he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Now, there's nowhere in the Bible that it records that the sons of Issachar separately were enslaved. So it's not like an individual thing that has to do with slave. Lots of times the children of Israel were taken captive and brought into slavery. But that was kind of the, you know, the broad everybody's in. But on this particular case, it says, but this particular tribe became a band of slaves. And scholars agree, we're not talking about being captivated and put into slavery. We're talking about someone who willingly... Puts his, puts his shoulders under the burden, and just becomes the blue-collar workforce that will take a nation all the way through to where it needs to, to be. And this is who these guys were. Now, it's also important, remember, to recognize they showed up in a military list, so th- these are not just, you know, kind of passive people who are just, you know, working, just working everyday jobs, and they don't really care. These are, these are people of strong conviction. These are people that are willing to stand up and fight. These are people that are, that are critically thinking. They're pressing through and they're looking, but they're doing it with a grassroots understanding of what wisdom really looks like. What are the practical, pragmatic answers? We don't buy into all the fluff and the one-liners. We're really looking through, and we're asking the Lord, tell us, show us what's going on. Tell us what we need to do, and then we're just showing up every single day and we're just doing it and we're just doing it and we're just doing it. I think this is really important because knowing who they are also helps us to understand who they're not. When they show up in this list in 1st Chronicles chapter 12, this is not the elite. These are not the people that were highly educated at the Ivy League schools or they came out of the military academies. And this is not any of those guys. This is not people that are so strategic and, you know, and, and, and such, such a, a rare gem. These are the backbone, the hardworking, the blue collar show up every single day and get the job done and do it with pragmatism and do it with, 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 with confidence that this is going to work and you just keep moving forward. That's who showed up in this list. And I don't know about you, but that makes me relate to these guys because I grew up in an Isakarian home. I grew up with parents who were just hardworking parents. I didn't grow up in some elite environment where, you know, the silver spoon was always in my mouth. I grew up in an an environment with parents that taught me a, a phenomenal work ethic and taught me that integrity is always the highest premium. You never give away your name. You never give away your reputation. You work for it. Even if you have to take a loss, you stay in there and you just keep doing it. I grew up with a parent who was passionate about the things of God, passionate about the Word of God. Not always astute in understanding, but always authentic and sincere. We are not going to compromise. We're going to move forward. And they just had that grassroots kind of an approach to life. In fact, I can remember my dad saying, I don't know how many times to me, uh, the handshake reveals the man. And so many times we'd walk away from meeting somebody. And after my dad, you know, got got off, he he wasn't being critical. He was trying to pass something off to me. But he would say, I know that that guy has a great potential. But he had a weak handshake. He's got real soft skin. He's got no calluses on his hands. He said he, he wouldn't even look me in the eye, just a glance or two. And he said, and, and his conversation was short and abrupt. He said, he probably has great potential, but he needs to get a real job. Now, it took me a while, but I understood what my dad was saying. He wasn't saying that everybody had to do manual labor. That wasn't the point. The point was the dad understood that there are these fundamentals of character building there are these fundamentals of stick to and of tenacity in life that don't come cheap and they don't come fast. You have to learn them down in the grind just doing the right thing over and over and over and over and over again. And, and I got, as I got older in life and I, you know, had a family of my own and I'm experiencing this, I realized not only was dad right, dad was scripturally right. Because there's lots of places in the Bible that it points back to the same thing. Mark chapter 4 says, the whole kingdom of God works like a farm. You just don't get in the right environment with the right music and the right vibe. And and, and all of a sudden, life is just perfect and wonderful from that point on. God does some amazing things to give us a lift. God does some remarkable things to set us free and kind of get us started in a new place. But the bottom line is, if you're going to live and enjoy and experience the blessings of God, it's like working on a farm. You better get your overalls on. You better roll up your sleeves and you better get to work. Because you're going to have to plant some stuff. In fact, Paul elaborates to the Galatians church in Galatians 6 and says, God will never be made fun of. You won't be able to point and say, well, you didn't know what you were talking about. He said, listen, whatever a man sows, that's what he will reap. You don't sow, you don't reap. But if you do so, you can just guarantee that's what you're going to reap, because this is how life really, really works. In fact, we could go on and on. I remember reading through the book of Proverbs very intentionally one time, and just highlighting every single scripture that talked about discipline, and diligence, and patience, and staying with it. And, and one of the scriptures that jumped out uh, was, it said that the, it's the diligent hand Not the strategist, not the intelligent, not the elite, not the prominent. It's the diligent hand that eventually will rule the day. It's the one that just keeps showing up and doing it over and over and over and over again. And I begin to realize Dad knew what he was talking about. This whole Issacharian thing is absolutely right. Well, when you just kind of follow that train of thought, you realize how important it was then in this particular chapter of 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 12, why David would have put that group of men squarely in the middle and say, yeah, we need strong fighters and we need guys that are aggressive and we need guys that are skilled and, and people that are smart and strategic. But you know what we really need? We need a group of people who can understand what's really going on, who knows exactly what to do And they're willing to show up and just do it and do it and do it and do it to the point that people begin to follow them. This is what we really need. And welcome to the men of Issachar. So so again, let me just kind of highlight those three things because they're important and they're relevant to us. It said they understood the times. Again, that means they were insightful. I, I don't mean they were fanciful in their theories. And you know what? It's probably this or it's probably that. And they weren't trying to be super eloquent. There weren't big stump speeches here. They were just grassroots perceptive. They just looked and they, they could see through all the political rhetoric and they could say, you, you know what? You know what's really happening here? They, they could look at the economy and recognize the ebbs and the flows and, and learn to prepare for something that was about to go somewhere else and then to capitalize on something that was coming out of something else. And, and these guys could just do it. We're not talking about Wall Street geniuses. We're talking about guys that were just showing up every day and we're just looking at it. But more importantly that these were spiritual men who were in a very crucial part of Israel's history, played this keen role to be able to help set a compass and guide the nation straight forward. Not only that, they didn't just understand the times, they they knew what to do. And again, this was not just, you know, responses in crisis, but this was the continued response until the season changed, until something was different. So not just do it one time. Let's do it and do it and do it. And let's just stay on this trajectory and let's just keep doing it because this is what's going to move us out of where we are into where we want to be and need to be. And these guys understood that. And once again, because they did this consistency over a period of time, it says that all of their brothers obeyed them. In other words, they had this earned influence. Not because they had the name on a door, not because they had a business card, not because, you know, they got to tell other people what to do. They had, they had earned the credibility where their brothers just lined up and said, we're with you guys. Well, I haven't even told you what we're going to do. doesn't matter. We're with you guys. We've, we've seen your character. We trust you. Tell us what you see. Help us to understand what you think needs to be done, and we're with you. And they they learn to lead by influence, which again, at that specific moment, David was desperate for. How can I find people that'll help us to draw a straight line and reunify the nation and get us back into God's plan? Now, we're going to go to Luke chapter 6, but let me just pause real quick so that you can marinate for, you know, 10 seconds long enough to say, this is so relevant today. Not just on a global or a national level, this is so relevant today on a personal level. I don't know about you, I don't like feeling lost. I don't like feeling like I'm in the middle of a beehive and it's so confusing that I don't even know who to believe and what. And I'm so grateful that we never have to be like that as a follower of God because we serve someone who always knows what's going on and who always knows what to do and who promises us if we will follow him, not only will we find our pathway to where it needs to be, but other people will be able to follow us, and we can lead other people into the truth and into victory. And this is God's design, by the way. You'll see all through the Bible. I, it was amazing to me when, when I realized this, and I, and I kind of went on this little journey. You can see all the way through the Bible, almost every chapter, but not quite, but certainly every story, Every story, every book of the Bible, all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, you'll see the contrast. Usually two people show up in the story at least. One I'm going to classify as an Issacharian person. Somebody who understands what's going on, who knows what to do, and who does it to the point that other people begin to follow. And then you'll always find somebody else. Sometimes they're the villain, sometimes the villain, sometimes they're just the village idiot. They just don't know what to do, and they're just throwing their weight around thinking they're doing the right thing. But you're always going to see this comparison, and and it shows up all the way through the Bible, so much so that Jesus actually wraps a parable around it. And that parable has become one of the most popular parables to Christians today. Even people that are not believers, they, they've heard of this parable. And they will often use it in their secular success conferences and seminars. But it's the parable we see in Luke chapter 6 of two builders. One of them is called a wise builder. I'm going to insert they're an Issacharian builder. And the other is a foolish builder. He's just trying to get something really done, done really fast and, and, and what he thinks is efficient and maybe cost effective, uh, but he cuts a whole lot of corners and the end of it is tragic. So in Luke chapter 6, that's what we're going to pick up and we'll finish the study today. And, and now that you understand what these men of Issachar are and what becoming a, a, a man of Issachar is... I want to show you what Jesus teaches. He identifies this man of Issachar and the wise builder. But more importantly, Jesus said, and here's how you become that. Anybody can do this. Anybody. In fact, the invitation is to everybody to do this and you will become a person no matter what situation, no matter what time period you live in history, you'll become a person who understands what's going on who can discern and understand exactly what to do, and your life will always come out in victory to the point that you'll have influence. Other people will be following you. You won't have to demand it. You won't have to threaten it. They will just follow you because they can see that you're, you're someone who understands and who always knows how to do the right thing. It's Luke chapter six, and we're starting in verse number 46. And the first thing Jesus does, like he often does, he primes the pump. So he's going to ask this great question that's supposed to cause us to step back and say, "Uh, I, I don't know. That's interesting. And here's the question he's asking these people that, by the way, are showing up. They're listening to him. They're believers. And he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do what I say? I've been doing this a long time. I've been studying the Bible personally and to teach for a long time. I don't think to this day, as in this study, as in last night speaking the message, as in right now when I'm reading it, I don't think I've ever been able to read that question without all of a sudden this assessment just kind of going off in my brain and me finding areas of my life, sometimes really small and other times a little larger, that this question penetrates and say, why is that, Gil? Gil? Why do you keep calling me Lord and you just don't do what I'm telling you to do? And, and, I, and I want the question to sit for a minute because he's about to tell a parable that will show us the results of someone who does call him Lord and listens to what he says as opposed to someone who keeps calling him Lord but doesn't. But, but the question needs to be understood and acknowledged. And, and I, I'm, I'm constantly putting it before the Holy Spirit. Well, tell me why that is now. I know why it was, but I Pretty sure we got past that and we grew out of it. But you're right. I, I can still see areas that either I'm dragging my feet, either I'm procrastinating, either I push it to the back burner and you keep bringing it up and I keep pushing it back. And here we are again talking about it. Why do I do that? What is it inside of me that so easily pushes away the person that I say that I revere the most? And so we'll let that question linger as we move on, because that's the question that's going to help us to identify some of the things that Jesus says. But, but here's what Jesus does. He asks this question rhetorically, and I can imagine he kind of you know, gives a little bit of a dramatic pause there while it's sinking in, and they're starting to think, what, do we do that, and, and why do we do that? But he doesn't elaborate anymore. He goes straight into the story. And so why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, but do not what I say? Verse 47, whosoever comes to me and hears and does what I say, I will show you who he is like. Now, let me just stop. He, right away, he jumps straight into the story and he gives three keys. And these are the three keys we're going to land on. So let me let this be the first introduction. He says, whosoever comes to me. And that's really important because there's an emphasis on the word comes to me, not comes around me, not just kind of visits the vicinity or the area from time to time, but this is talking about a very personal surrender, a very personal commitment. This is you rolling up and saying, listen to me, I know that you're really good at this area. Would you mentor me? Would you coach me? Can I make regular appointments? And I promise, man, I'll lean in. But it's surrendering yourself and coming and acknowledging that the person you're talking to knows way more than you do. And so he said, whoever comes to me and notice this next one and hears, that's a really important word too, because it sounds so common and so generic we can gloss over it. But there's a number of times that Jesus, before he's about to, to, to help them to understand a really important insight, he says, by the way, whoever has ears to hear, this is the time you should start listening. In other words, it's possible for us to be in an environments so and we can hear words are being spoken and you know, every once in a while intellectually we're grabbing a concept or two, but that's totally different than someone who comes and they're like metaphorically leaning forward in their chair and saying, come on, I, I need this, talk to me. I, I, I'm desperate for the answer. I, I'm not gonna walk away empty-handed. I gotta know what's going on. And so here he says, listen, whoever comes to me personally surrendering themselves And whoever listens to the point that they really need to learn and understand, and they're going to walk away and grab it, scribble it down and say, I can't forget that. That's really important. That's a key. But notice this last thing, and does what I say. So this is saying that what I just gleaned is so valuable and I'm so surrendered and I trust the person that's talking so much that even if I don't really get it and I don't think that's really not going to be helpful, because they said it, I will go and as quickly and as accurately as I can, I'll begin to put that into practice. Not perfectly but to the best of my ability, he says, whoever comes to me and whoever hears really listens and then does what I say. He goes on, and he says, I'll show you who he's like. Or we could say, let me show you what his life will become. Let me show you what will develop. And in verse 48, he said, he's like a man who builds a house. Many times, I want to say most of the time, but many times when we read about, uh, we read the, the picture of a house in the New Testament, it's talking about your life your life. And so when the Bible says that our, that, uh, that our bodies are the temple or the house of the Holy Spirit, it's not talking about just your physical body. It's talking about your life, your personhood, everything that you're doing. You're building a habitation, a place that the Holy Spirit can come and can live and can be part of the, the ins and outs and the, go, the goings on of your life. And so he says, we're talking about a guy who's building a house, building a life, And notice what this guy does. He dug deep and he put the building on the rock. Now there's a couple of really important things so you can walk away and understand. First of all, the word rock here is not talking about rocky and it's not even talking about a man-made kind of a concrete slab. This word rock is, is what they would have called back then this massive layer of solid, solid stone, like you dig down into the stratospheres of the earth until you find this massive layer of rock that's been there for thousands, perhaps millions of years. And it is immovable. No one's going gonna to no move that that's going you can chisel through it, you can do whatever, but you're not gonna move it. That is a massive, massive rock. This is what he's talking about. This is the word. And he, he's referencing the unchangeableness of God's word. You don't have to like what God says. You don't even have to buy into what God says. But let me tell you what you're going to find out one way or the other. What God says is true, period. What God says will always work the way God said it, because he's God. And so he's saying that there, there is a level of truth and understanding that is so unchangeable, so immovable that for this guy, it was worth taking the time and effort to dig and not just dig, but to dig deep, 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 deep. Lots of sweat, lots of toil, but he dug deep until he finally nailed it and said, okay, I get it. Okay, that's what the truth is. But not only that, I want you to notice in in the story, he's talking about building a life or building a house, but he doesn't elaborate at all on the construction of the actual house. There's no talk about building the walls and squaring up the framing and did you get the right kind of roof on there with just the right pitch? And and what does the house look like inside? Do you have bathrooms? There's no mention of the construction of the house at all. It's only that he's building a house, but all of the focus is the fact that he dug down deep and whatever he's about to build, he put it on a foundation that was immovable, solid rock. And let me tell you why that's important and that's true. Because as the foundation goes, so goes the house. When you establish your pattern with understanding how the foundation needs to be right, then the assumption is that that pattern will hold and you will hold to that same kind of pattern of understanding what context you're in and understanding the right thing to do and then doing it to get the right result. If you'll do that at a foundational level, you build the character and the pattern and you'll do that all the way through the house. If you don't do that at the foundational level, Then the same pattern is established on the other side. If you compromise there, you'll compromise everywhere. You're just trying to get something that looks really cool. You're just trying to get into as quick as you can, for as cheap as you can, to enjoy it as long as you can. But he's trying to give us a contrast, and he's saying, this is not about the construction of the house. This is about whether or not you're willing to dig and find the foundation. If you'll do that, something is established in your life, and the actual building of the house will follow the same pattern. And so he goes on and he says, and we're in verse 48 now, it says, so he dug down deep to put the building on rock and listen to this, when the water came up, not if, when the water came up, there are going to be storms. You can't avoid them. I know that some people have a theology that if you can get everything right with the Lord, you're just going to live in flowers and daisies all of your life. That's just not true. That's not even God's plan, by the way. God wants us to go through these challenges so we can develop our spiritual muscles and we can hone our character in and we can learn some insights from the Lord that we never would have learned if we're just on easy street all the time. This is just part of the way life works. And so he says, when the water came up and the river beat against the house, it said, listen, the building could not be shaken. Why? Because it was built on a rock. So the foundation wasn't shaken for sure, but because the pattern held, not even the building was shaken. It, it, it didn't talk about how big the storm was. That, that's irrelevant. The most relevant part is how solid is the foundation and how solid was the construction. Okay, well, it can hold up against anything here. And so he says, it would, could not be shaken, it will not be shaken, because it was built on a rock. Let's keep moving in the story, verse 49 says, but, or however, in stark contrast to, he said, he who hears and does not do. So let's just stop. Evidently, the other builder also showed up to the orientation. He came. He was in the building, right? He surrendered himself. Not only that, but apparently he listened. He listened. He took the same set of notes. He walked away with the manual, with the set of blueprints. And, and he walked away with the same guarantee. Okay, we're going to do this thing. But somewhere along the line, he thought, that's just too much. I'm not digging all the way down there. That's crazy. I'm not doing that. You know how much that's going to cost? You know, you know how long that's going to take? And, and, he, and because he didn't get the foundation right, everything else was compromised. And that's what we're going to find out. It says that, um, that he, he heard, but he did not... Did not do what I say. And it goes on and says, he's like a man who built a house, listen to this, on nothing but earth. Now I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but let's keep reading. And the water beat against the house and at once it fell and was destroyed. Because it was on a faulty foundation, as the flood began to come and the foundation began to shift, something happened somewhere in the house. It wasn't just they lost a couple of shingles and the basement flooded and you can fix all that stuff something happened somewhere in the architecture of that house and there was a shift and once that happened it was like a domino effect all of the weight began began to be displaced and the whole house began to crumble and it said listen it crumbled fast it's not like it made it through most of the storm Whenever that water began to hit, it didn't take very long and things began to shift and, and all of a sudden life began to crumble. And it goes on and says, not only did it begin to crumble, it was destroyed. That particular Greek word means it's not going to get rebuilt. This whole thing came down from the top to the bottom and it, it's, it's a complete waste. It's a write-off. You will not be able to reconstruct that. Now. Here's what's important. It says that they built the house on nothing but earth. Matthew chapter 7 tells the same parable, but Matthew's a little more intentional to record what this earth was like, and he says he built it on sand. It's interesting because sand, when when you think about it and when you really study it, is tiny little micro particles of rock but they're disconnected and they're just kind of congested, you know, all scrambled together. And that's why whenever water comes or you put your foot on it, that's why they're so quickly displaced. They're they're, they're little tiny pieces of rock, but it's not solid rock. It's an assembly. And the reason that's important because we're talking about people that build their life on facts, on studies, on trends, on actual pieces of truth that can be measured and say, no, that's true, that's true. Well, that is true, and that's true, and this is true, but they're not one solid truth and because of that, those truths are constantly shifting every single day, every single day. And what happens is if you're trying to build the character or build, build the trajectory of your life, you can do fine until something shifts. And when it shifts, if this part of your life shifts, well, the ripple effect is that part of your life is shifting. And you have people that will work and work and work. And when they get the big enough storm, all of a sudden you realize their whole life shifts. And it's not that they just you know took a loss in their business. It's not that just that you know they their their, their life rhythms got off a little bit, all of a sudden they had some pressure in their business, and their marriage began, began to you know to to tense up a little bit, and their kids begin to react to the tenseness, and pretty soon you realize their whole family was destroyed and the business was lost immediately. Never recover from that. Never. And this is what he's trying to say. You know what the whole issue was? They came to God. They listen. They got a few things down, and they said, ah, I'm, I, "I can't do that. I'm just not going to do that." But the result was because the foundation wasn't there. As the foundation goes, so goes the rest of the life, and the life was not constructed in a solid way. As opposed to the other guy who took the time and said, "Listen, I don't, it, the house—we'll we'll, we'll figure the house out. You know, what's important right now? We got to find that foundation, and we got to get on it. And we can never move from that. That's our baseline." Everything else gets constructed from there. Let me just quickly go over these three things one more time. I want to add another little component or two, and then we're done for the morning. But this is super, super important, and yet it's so profoundly simple. So profoundly simple that maybe you've not experienced this, but I know that especially earlier in my Christian life, still today but not so much, I'm tempted to just kind of sweep it. Ah, that's not. Those are like the little things. Those Those are not a big deal. They are the only deal because everything else is built on these. So listen to this. Number one, he says, come to God. Come to God. Remember, that's a surrender to God. And when you say, well, what does that actually mean? Because it sounds super spiritual. Well, let me just get real practical for some starting places that the Bible supports. Uh, Come to church and I know I'm preaching to the choir because you are in church, right? But, but be consistent. Come and engage church. Take it a step further like Hebrews 10 says, and make sure you, that you're, you're joining a connect group. You're getting fellowship. It's not just sitting, you know, facing one direction, listening to somebody talk, but you're putting yourself in environments where there's going to be spiritual conversations and exchanges, real life, so we can learn to do life the way God's telling us to. This is really important. For those of you men, since I'm talking to men, we've got a phenomenal men's group that's going on on Saturday morning. Trip Campbell right here is leading it. I mean, this thing's, every time I check in, it's like it's grown another five or ten guys. And these are not just casual. These guys are learning to, to, to connect with one another, and share what's going on in life, and to pray for and support one another. This is really important. Here's the last one that I know I keep droning on and on, and I'll probably do it until Jesus comes back. You've got to have some daily time with the Lord. You've got to begin to develop the habit of a devotional life. You've got to spend some time in the scripture and you've got to spend some time thinking about that, chewing on it. And let me just say it this way, and talking to God about it. That's called prayer, but people get a little freaked out about that, okay? But you've got to spend some time talking to God about these things. If you do that in this incremental every single day, listen to me, then you will begin to develop a life. And I'm telling you, a hunger will be stimulated and you'll look forward to it and you'll want to do it more and more and more but this is what it means to come to God. It's really important. Jeremiah 29 verse 13 says this, you will look for me and find me when, when, when you look for me with all your heart. If you're just kind of visiting casually, you're not going to find what you're looking for. And something's going to tell you, see, I tried that. Well, we don't try this. We do it. And we dig deep and we keep digging and digging and digging until we say, oh, there it is. There it is. That's what it means to have a good devotional life. And we just keep at it. Here's number two. We listen to understand and retain. So we don't come to churches because it's Sunday and we're going to hear a good message. I hope Pastor Gill's not too long. I hope what he talks about is, you know, kind of interesting. We, listen, we come because we're not listening to a person. We're listening to the Holy Spirit. We're listening to the Word of God. I don't care who's talking. If they're talking from the Bible, I'm going to walk away with something. And that's the way that we come. I don't have time to read it, but Psalm chapter 1 talks about when, when we come and we, dis, we make a decision, we're not going to go seek the counsel of the ungodly. We're not going to hang around with them anymore. We're not going to be you know, super tight, good friends with people that are making fun of the things that, the God, that, that God says are the values of our life. We're just not going to do that anymore. I'm not saying we're not going to associate with them. We can't work with them. We can't be salt and light. But we're not, they're not going to be the ones that we go to to say, hey, I'm going through this thing. They're not going to lead you in the right direction. But it says, but the delight of the person who chooses God's way, their delights in the law of the Lord. And in that law, they meditate it day and night. You're probably thinking the law means this is all the things you can't do. That wasn't, wasn't the intention of God's law. The intention of God's law is, let me show you the parameters. And inside of these parameters is where God flows abundantly his blessing. If you live inside of these parameters, you'll find yourself in the constant flow of God's wisdom and God's insight and God's assistance and God's resource and God's bless. If you get outside of those parameters, you've violated a law that God has said, and you're not inside the flow. It was intended to be a blessing to show people this is the right way to do it. And, be, and this guy caught understanding. He said, I'm not going to listen to those guys anymore. They're not following the Lord. I'm going to say, Where are those parameters? And once I get in them, okay, I'm going to stay in this. I'm going to think about how do I really maximize this. This is what Jesus meant when he said, Come to me. And he said, Listen to learn and understand. Here's the last one he says, and then do what God says. Do what God says. Listen. We won't do it perfect, but every time you catch something from the Lord, you need to do your best to apply it as quickly and as accurately and as consistently as you can. I won't be perfect. You got to grow into these things. But you've got to say, I've got to get this thing into, in, into my life. James chapter 1 verse 22 says, obey the word of God. If you hear only and do not act, listen to this, you're, you're only fooling yourself. Most of the time, everybody around you knows you're the only one that, that's being deceived. Everybody around you knows that you, sh- you should be doing that. And yet you're not doing it. And you've got a whole bunch of reasons and rationales why. And you're the only one that's kind of got the wool over your eyes. Everybody else says, just do the right thing. Just do what God's saying. Now, I've had so many conversations with so many people over the years. And I usually find good-hearted very authentic, you know, people that really do love the Lord who are still stuck in that question that Jesus asked. Why do you keep calling me Lord, but you won't do what I'm telling you to do? And they've got a lot of great reasons. Pastor, I just got so many things going in my life right now. I know you're telling me I need to read my Bible. I need to come to church, but I got so many things going, so many responsibilities. Pastor, I have a job. Listen to me very carefully. This is the father talking, my father heart talking. Listen to me. This right here, this is your job dads, this is your job. Whatever else you do, that's your vocation. You get money from that. This is your job. That you are digging down to find the truth of God's word. That you're mining past all the chaos and and all the conflicting stories that are being hurled at you and your family. This is your job to dig down and find that rock foundation. Whatever the cost is, pay it. Whatever else has to be sacrificed, this is your job right here to be men that are growing, that are coming to God with all of your heart and saying, God, I'm desperate, man. I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. This is a scary place to live. And I'm responsible for my family. I'm responsible for my wife and, and for my children. I, I want my generations, the children's children to, to be walking with the Lord and be blessed. God, I, I need some help. The Bible says, when you seek with God with all of your heart, God says, I'm right here. I'm right here. Let me tell you what's happening. This is your job is to lay the foundation to be men of Issachar that know exactly what's going on And you know exactly what to do, not because you're so smart, but because you've spent time and the Holy Spirit's giving you these little nudges. I I, I think I'm catching something. I think I can see that. And then you're men that get in there and you do it and you do it and you do it and you do it to the point that your wife and your children have such confidence in you. I know it's a crazy time, but you know what? Dad, dad's going to help us. I know dad's praying. Dad's talking to the Lord. Dad's going to figure this thing out. And see that's what God's called us to be. That's what is the enemy is attacking with everything he can. But God's bigger than that. God's word is sure. It will never ever change. And if we'll build our life on this, then not only will we find a, a, the thing we're supposed to do, but we'll lead our families in kind. Dads, I want to pray for you today. I'm not going to ask you to stand up because Spencer's got some things he needs to share as we exit today, but right where you're at, let me just pray for you. I'm just going to pray a heartfelt prayer uh, because I understand where each of you are at, and when I say dads, I'm talking about biological dads, practical dads, spiritual dads. In fact, let me just include all of you that are future dads, okay, because you got to start building this stuff right now so that when you step into this, you're ready. And so let me pray for all of you this morning bow your head. If you're next to a dad and you just want to put your hand over on their hand or your shoulder, uh, then don't just listen to my prayer. Agree, put your faith into this with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you that you didn't leave us just to grope forward on our own, but you gave us truth. And you sent the Holy Spirit to be the teacher, to be the guide, to be the partner, the one who gives us a boost, lifts us up and over things or wraps us up and takes us right through the middle of stuff. Thank you so much that you've given us everything we need to be strong men, Issacharian men. And I'm praying for every guy in this place today in Jesus name, that whatever the enemy has done, that you would neutralize it right now any place that he's been taken prisoner in his life with addictions and habits or mindsets that are stopping him from being who God's called him to be. Would you neutralize that and let every one of those chains fall to the ground right now in Jesus' name? Holy Spirit, would you give him the courage and the clarity to make decisions to say, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to give my whole life to him and I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to help me to begin to move forward in the way he wants me to go. As they do that, as they take that first step, whatever the next thing is, then I pray you would meet them in a miraculous, a supernatural way, that you would let them know that you're responding immediately and that you will never leave them. You'll never forsake them from that point on. Lord, I thank you in the name of Jesus that Lakeshore will be a place where Iskarian and men have gathered not just so we can all be together, but Lord, so we can reach out and we can rescue other people and bring them to a place of truth, a place of supernatural power and experience. And we can keep marching forward in the things of God. May it be known that the men of Lakeshore are those who understand their times, who know exactly what to do, and by, by reason of character have gained the influence to lead other people into the truth. I thank you for all of this.